Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Donald Trump, and you're listening to The Joe Man Show on KUHS Daily. Special guests, Joe Man and Christian Black. You're tuned into The Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. I'm your host, Joe Man, and tonight we're going to be discussing a lot of stuff that has transpired in the wake of Donald J. Trump's inauguration. My guest this evening is Christian Black, attorney at law. And, of course, in preparation for this show, I set aside some time to watch Trump's inauguration speech. And my first observation within moments of the speech was that he thanked previous presidents, including Clinton and Obama, whom he criticized, to say the least, numerous times during his campaign and prior to it, including tweeting, quote, Obama is without question the worst ever president. I have to at the very least commend him for, I guess, humbling himself and paying respect to the previous leaders by thanking them, though his sincerity is obviously questionable. And uh, shortly after his introduction, he elaborated that he will be transferring the power of Washington, D.C. into the hands of the people. And I'd like to say a few things about this. Firstly, while the sentiment is nice and power to the people is certainly a staple of our democracy, I'm not so certain that he's sincere about this. Secondly, he also stated we will no longer accept politicians who are all talk and no action, constantly complaining but never doing anything about it. And last but not least, he said he wants to have, quote, great schools, unquote. In regards to that, let's take a look at a few of his proposed appointments, starting with the most, uh, possibly most obvious one, his choice for Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. Uh, Let's listen to a clip of some of DeVos's most famous moments. Check this out. Uh, Ms. DeVos, many of my Democratic colleagues have pointed out your lack of experience in K-12 public schools. But I'd like to ask you about your qualifications for leading the nation on higher education. The Department of Education is in charge of making sure that the $150 billion that we invest in students each year gets into the right hands and that students have the support they need to be able to pay back their student loans. The Secretary of Education is essentially responsible for managing a trillion-dollar student loan bank and distributing $30 billion in Pell Grants to students each year. The financial futures of an entire generation of young people depend on your department getting that right. Now, Mrs. DeVos, do you have any direct experience in running a bank? Senator, I do not. Uh-huh. Do you have you ever managed or overseen a trillion-dollar loan program? I have not. How about a billion-dollar loan program? I have not. Okay, so no experience in managing a program like this. How about participating in one? I think it's important for the person who is in charge of our financial aid programs to understand what it's like for students and their families who are struggling to pay for college. Mrs. DeVos, have you ever taken out a student loan from the federal government to help pay for college? I have not. Uh, Have any of your children had to borrow money in order to go to college? They have been fortunate not to. Uh-huh. Have you had any personal experience with the Pell Grant? Uh, not personal experience, but certainly friends and um, students with whom I've worked. So you have, have no personal experience with college financial aid or management of higher education. Mrs. DeVos, then let's start with the basics. Do you support protecting federal taxpayer dollars from waste, fraud, and abuse? 
Absolutely. Oh, good. So do I. Because now we all know that President-elect Trump's experience with higher education was to create a fake university, which resulted in his paying a $25 million to students that he cheated. So I'm curious about how the Trump administration would protect against waste, fraud, and abuse at similar for-profit colleges. So here's my question. How do you plan to protect taxpayer dollars from waste, fraud, and abuse by colleges that take in millions of dollars in federal student aid? Senator, um, if confirmed, I will certainly be very vigilant. Yeah, I'm asking people, how. I, the, the, the how are you going to do that? You said you're committed. The individuals with whom I work in the department will ensure that federal monies are used properly and appropriately and I will look forward to working so, with so you. So you're going to subcontract making sure that what happened with uh, universities that cheat students doesn't happen anymore? No, I didn't uh, say You're going to give that to someone else to do? I just want to know what your ideas are for making sure we don't have problems with waste, fraud, and abuse. I, I want to make sure we don't have problems with that as well. And well, if confirmed, I will work diligently to ensure that we are addressing any of those issues. Well, let me make a suggestion on this. It actually turns out that there are a whole group of rules that are already written and are there, and all you have to do is enforce them. So what I want to know is, will you commit to enforcing these rules to ensure that no career college receives federal funds unless they can prove that they are actually preparing their students for gainful employment and not cheating them? Senator, I will commit to ensuring that institutions which receive federal funds are actually serving their students well. And, and so you will enforce the gainful employment rule to make sure that these career colleges are not cheating students? Uh, we will certainly review that rule. You'll and review see it? That you and, will not and commit to enforce it? it? And see that it is... Uh, actually achieving what the, the intentions are. I, I don't understand about reviewing it. We talked about this in my office. There are already rules in place to stop waste, fraud, and abuse. And I don't understand how you cannot be sure about enforcing them. You know, swindlers and crooks are out there doing backflips when they hear an answer like this. If confirmed, you will be the cop on the beat. And if you can't commit to use the tools that are already available to you in the Department of Education, then I don't see how you can be the Secretary of Education. Um, how much information do you have about the finances of the President-elect, his family, or Trump-related organizations? I don't have any of that information, Senator. So I take it that you won't have any way of knowing when asked by the President to take official action in your capacity as Secretary, how those actions might affect his personal financial situation. I'm not sure I could comment on that. And this isn't theoretical. He owns a university. I think it's relevant to assessing the wisdom of an education policy proposal to know how that proposal might affect the President's personal finances. Do you disagree with me? Well, I think the president-elect has uh, taken steps to ensure. Can, can I ask? That do, you, do you disagree with me? Is is it? Can you can you state your question yep. again? I think it's relevant to assessing the wisdom of an education policy proposal to know how the proposal might affect the president's personal finances. Do you disagree with me? 
Um, I don't disagree with you. Okay, thank you. The nation deserves a Secretary of Education who's a champion of kids, parents, state and local control, and outcomes. And I also think the nation deserves a Secretary who's a champion of public education. In a 2015 speech on education, you were pretty blunt, quote, government really sucks. And you called the public school system a, quote, dead end. In order to clarify, you never attended a public school, K-12 school, did you? Correct. And your children did not either, correct? That's correct. And you've never taught at a K-12 public school, correct? I'm not. Do you think that schools that receive, K-12 schools that receive government funding should meet the same accountability standards, outcome standards? I, all schools that receive public funding should be accountable, yes. Should, should meet the same accountability standards? Yes, although you have different accountability standards well, between traditional traditional public schools and charter schools. But I'm, but I, but I'm really interested in this. Okay, Should everybody well, be on a level playing field? So public, public charter or private K-12 schools, if they receive taxpayer funding, they should meet the same accountability standards. Yes, they should be very transparent with the information and parents should have that information first and foremost. And if confirmed, will you insist upon that equal accountability in any K-12 school or educational program that receives federal funding, whether public, public charter, or private? I support accountability. Equal accountability for all schools that receive federal funding. I support accountability. Okay, is that a yes or a no? That's a, I support accountability. Do you not want to answer my question? I support accountability. Okay, let me ask you this. I think all schools that receive taxpayer funding should be equally accountable. Do you agree with me or not? Well, they don't. They're not today. I, but I think they should. Do you agree with me or not? Well, no, because... You don't agree with me. Let me move to my next question. Should all K-12 schools receiving governmental funding be required to meet the requirements of the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act? I think they already are. Okay, so... So, but, but I'm asking you a should question, whether, whether they are or not, we'll get into that later. Should all schools that receive if, if schools taxpayer funding be required to meet the uh, requirements of the individuals with disabilities in education? I think that is a matter that's best left to the states. So states might, some states might be good to kids with disabilities and other states might not be so good and then what, people could just move around the country if they don't like other kids are being treated? I think that's an issue that's best left to the states. What about the federal requirement? It's a federal law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Let's limit it to federal funding. If schools receive federal funding, should they be required to follow federal law, whether they're public, public charter, or private? As the senator referred to... Um, Just yes or no. I've only got Florida, one more question. Florida program. Uh, there's many parents that are very happy with the program there. I think, let me state this. I think all schools that receive federal funding, public, public charter, or private, should be required to meet the conditions of the Individuals with Disabilities and Education Act. Do you agree with me or not? I think that is certainly worth discussion, and I would look forward to So you to cannot yet agree with me. And finally, should all K-12 schools receiving governmental funding be required to report the same information regarding instances of harassment, discipline, or bullying? if they receive federal funding. I think that federal funding certainly comes with strings attached. I think all such schools should be required to report equally information about discipline, harassment, or bullying. Do you agree with me or not? I would look forward to reviewing that provision. If it was a court, I would uh, say to the court, let the uh, judge instruct the witness to answer the question. It's not a court, you're not under oath, or you're not under a subpoena, but you're trying to win my vote. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Mrs. DeVos, there is a growing fear, I think, in this country that we are moving toward uh, what some would call an oligarchic form of society, uh, where a small number 
of very, very wealthy billionaires control to a significant degree our economic and political life. Um, would you be so kind as to tell us uh, how much money your family has contributed to the Republican Party over the years? Senator, first of all, thank you um, for that question. I'm again was pleased to meet you in your office uh, last week. Um, I wish I could give you that number. I don't know. I have heard the number was 200 million. Does that sound in the ballpark? It, collectively, between yeah, over my the years, entire yes. family, that's that's possible. Okay. My question is, and I don't mean to be rude, but do you think if you were not a multi-billionaire, if you, a family, has not made hundreds of millions of dollars of contributions to the Republican Party that you would be sitting here today? Um, Senator, as a matter of fact, I do think that there would be that possibility. I've worked very hard on behalf of parents and, and children for the last almost 30 years to be a voice for parents and to voice for students and to empower parents to make decisions on behalf of their children, primarily low-income children. Thank you. Uh, in your statement, your prepared statement, you say, and I quote, students should make informed choices about what type of education they want to pursue post-high school and have access to high-quality options. Some of us believe that we should make public colleges and universities tuition-free so that every young person in this country, regardless of income, does have that option. That's not the case today. Will you work with me and others to make public colleges and universities tuition-free through federal and state efforts? Well, Senator, I think that's a really interesting idea, and it's really great to consider and think about but I think we also have to consider the fact that there's nothing in life that's truly free. Somebody's going to pay for it. Oh, and so, yes, you're right. And you're so right. Somebody would, will pay for it, but that takes us to another issue. I think and if, that is, if I may, yeah. and that is right now we have proposals in front of us to substantially lower tax breaks for billionaires in this country, while at the same time low-income kids can't afford to go to college. Do you think that makes sense? Senator, I think if, if your question is really around how can we help college and higher education be more affordable for young people as they anticipate Actually, that it. wasn't my question. My question is, should we make public colleges and universities tuition-free so that every family in America, regardless of income, will have the ability to have their kids get a higher education. That was my question. Senator, I think, I think we, we can work together and we could work hard on making sure that college or higher education in some form is affordable for all young people that want to pursue it. And I would look forward to that opportunity if confirmed. Would you agree with me that if there is a mom watching this hearing who makes thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year, single mom perhaps, who has to pay ten dollars or $15,000 a year for childcare for her daughter, that that is a burden that is almost impossible uh, to deal with. Would, what are your proposals about making childcare universal uh, for our working families? Do you have ideas on that? Do you agree with that idea? 
that that certainly is a burden and while and I, I can understand the uh, challenge that that family that young mother would face in deciding how to best serve her child's needs again I think if we're talking about the future of that child and their education I would look forward to working with you I know we have common ground on a lot of things and we could find ways to work together to ensure that that young mom's child will have a great opportunity for a great education in the future there are countries around the world which do provide universal very inexpensive or free childcare. Would you work with me in moving our government in that direction? Senator, again, I, I feel very strongly about the importance of young families having an opportunity for good child care for their children. Um, I'm not sure that But it's that's not a question of, of an opportunity. Department. It's a question of being able to, very often my Republican friends talk about opportunity. But it's not a question of opportunity. It's a question of being able to afford it. How do we help somebody who's making eight or nine bucks an hour at a time when we can't raise the minimum wage here because of Republican opposition, how do we make sure that those moms can get quality childcare that they can afford? Well, I would look forward to helping that mom get quality, a quality education for their child or their children so that they could look forward to a bright and hopeful future. ...side of grade level. And this is, uh, brings me to the issue of, of proficiency, which uh, Senator... Uh, uh, cited versus growth and I would like your your views on uh, the relative advantage of measuring uh, doing assessments and using them to measure proficiency or to measure, measure growth thank you senator for that question um, I think if if I'm understanding your question correctly around proficiency I would I would also um, correlate it to competency and mastery so that you each student is measured according to the um, advancement that they're making in each subject area well that's growth a, at, at, that's not proficiency so in other words the growth they're making is in growth the proficiency is if an arbitrary reached, standard if reached a level the proficiency is if they've reached a, a like third grade level for reading etc no, I'm talking about the debate between proficiency and growth yeah what, what your thoughts are on them well I, I was just asking to clarify then well this well, is this is a subject that is has been debated in the education community for years in and I've I've advocated growth as the chairman and every member of this committee knows because with proficiency, uh, teachers uh, ignore the kids at the top mm -hmm. who are not going to fall below proficiency, and they ignore the kid at the bottom who, no matter what they do, will never get to proficiency. So I've been an advocate of growth. But it surprises me that you don't know this issue. And Mr. Chairman, I think this is a good reason for us to have more questions. Because this is a very important subject, education, our kids' education. And I think we're selling our kids short by not being able to have a debate on it. Well, in terms of throwing numbers around, you said that uh, student debt has increased by 1,000% since 980% in eight years. I'm sorry? 980%. That's not, that's, that's just not so. It's increased 118% in the past eight mm. years.
Well, so I'm, I'm just asking, if you're challenging my figures, I would ask that you get your figures straight about education policy, and that's why we want more questions, because we want to know if this person that we are entrusting, or may entrust to be the Secretary of Education, if she has the breadth and depth of knowledge that we would expect from someone who has that important uh, that, that important job. And I was kind of uh, surprised, well, I'm not that surprised, that you did not know this issue. Mrs. DeVos, your family has a long history of supporting anti-LGBT causes, including donating millions of dollars to groups that push conversion therapy, the practice of trying to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity. For example, you and your family have given over $10 million to Focus on the Family, an organization that currently states on its website that, quote, homosexual strugglers can and do change their sexual behavior and identity. Mrs. DeVos, conversion therapy has been widely discredited and rejected for decades by every mainstream medical and mental health organization as neither medically nor ethically appropriate. It has been shown to lead to depression, anxiety, drug use, homelessness, and suicide, particularly in LGBT youth. In fact, many of the leaders and founders of conversion therapy, including both religious ministries and mental health professionals, have not only publicly renounced it, but have issued former, formal apologies for their work and how harmful it has been to the individuals involved. Mr. Chairman, I would ask that this be included in the record. It will be. Okay. So, to recap, she's completely unexperienced, completely unqualified. Her response to several questions was, I'll be vigilant. She wasn't able to specify how. I mean, I know, I know that it's kind of a platitude to say that politicians are cronies that are bought and paid for, but it's, it nevertheless stands to be true. Because when Senator Sanders asked her, do you know how much money your family has contributed to the Republican Party? over the years and he and he said it was somewhere in the ballpark of 200 million or more she didn't know she had no idea how much her family had even contributed she she doesn't know the difference between growth and proficiency she doesn't even know what the federal laws are surrounding public education and if i if i can be real for a minute this should concern all parents i i myself am a step parent to a child who is on the autism spectrum so of course for someone to say that they believe in accountability regarding schools dealing with children with disabilities is obviously of concern to me. And and maybe maybe if you're listening and you don't have a disabled child, maybe it doesn't matter to you. But what should matter is that she has no idea how to run education. And we have a cabinet of almost entirely anti-science evangelical people who are not going to be opposed to schools teaching creation myth and opting out of teaching evolution and other scientific studies. This affects everybody. This affects future generations. And I, I saw something on Facebook the other day that said something along the lines of, you know, if you want to keep this Republican majority, you want to keep these people in power, damage education. Make sure you're raising people who don't know any better. And it, it seems to me like that's that's a pretty effective strategy, you know, just create a whole generation of people who don't don't know the difference between what should be taught in schools and what shouldn't and 
and and let that determine your future voters and your future constituents and supporters. I mean, this is insane to me. We're witnessing unprecedented levels of unprofessionalism in politics right now. Well, I'd say, especially speaking of the religious aspect, going back all the way to Kennedy, who was the first non-Protestant president we've had in this country. The first. The first. I did not know that. Yeah. Going back to Kennedy, I think that we can see through the 60s the rise of the evangelical right. And the evangelists back then, they started building this sort of grassroots political movement where they infiltrated state-level legislatures, educational institutions. They started networking, homeschooling, and um, further into these private schools, these private religious schools. Betsy DeVos has been involved in this since she was a young woman, and her family has been involved in this. She comes from an extremist, Calvinist, ultra-right-wing, Protestant, uh, religious sect, basically. They're almost like a cult. And her whole purpose in supporting these charter schools and private schools is to divert religious, uh, federal funds to religious education. This is... And now, being the Secretary of Education, she's in a position where she can actually accomplish this even though the Supreme Court has said that it's unconstitutional. On the topic of conversion therapy, her family has donated to causes that support conversion therapy, which involves the electrocution of members of the LGBT community in the hopes of reforming them to be straight or or whatever. And, and you know, it, as Senator Franken said it's resulted in higher levels of depression and drug abuse and suicide. How can you call yourself a Christian and advocate for these sorts of things? It's like systemic long-term genocide of people who don't fall into your category of socially acceptable. Well, what's interesting is to look at what their priorities are and what they're most scared of. You know, abortion and homosexuality and if you look at it, they all revolve around sex. Yeah. It's not poverty that they're worried about or crony capitalism. We certainly <laughs> know they're not worried about that. Yeah. It's not foreign policy. It's not any of that. It's sex. And they're just acting out their fear about it by literally torturing people who disagree with them and threaten their you know, missionary position, like <laughs> sex just for procreation sort of philosophy. Victorian era suppressed sexual. Yeah. Anything that threatens that, they are like deathly afraid of. <laughs> and what's funny is that the people who are most vociferously anti-gay usually are gay. I know. <laughs> That's usually how it ends up playing out. <laughs> and I mean... This is our this is our whole educational system. This is the this is the future of America. This is our children. Uh, everybody should be worried. Everybody should be very worried. And and on top of on top of DeVos, we've got Steve Bannon, who's Trump's pick for chief strategist and and I believe he's has he been appointed to that position? Not just uh the chief strategist, which by the way is a position that doesn't even require 
uh, you know, confirmation by Senate. It's just like a made-up position that Trump just decided to create. But it puts Bannon in a position where he's like the second most powerful person in the whole country, even in some ways more than the vice president, because he has Trump's ear. Yeah. Um, Now he's also going to be on the National Security Council, which doesn't even make sense. He certainly has no qualifications for that at all. But just because Trump wants him on that council, which is like the highest strategic council, you know, in the country. This is the council that like generals are on and things like that, <laughs> which, by the way, they, they got rid of to put Steve Bannon on. So the CEO of a far right anti-Semitic website is in the same position as, as generals, basically. Yeah. And if you've ever I mean, most people haven't read it unless you're into that. Yeah. Which if you're listening to this, you're probably not. But um if you really dig into Steve Bannon's philosophy about the fourth turning and this whole idea that every 80 years we have this major disruptive event, you know, whether it's the Civil War, the, the Revolution, you know, or World War II, like every 80 years, they believe that something socially or economically or nationally disrupts us and it creates chaos and then we are like reborn in this new era so that's that's the that's the fourth turning yeah so he believes it's kind of funny in, in one of my in one of my ads i said the fourth reich <laughs> so that's kind of reminiscent yeah of that. it's interesting <laughs> and so it's about 80 years from world war ii and the great depression right before it so he bannon believes that his goal is to create this event happening and create the sort of conservative, like, utopia after it. But he believes first you have to tear everything down. He firmly believes it's gonna, there's going to be some sort of world war involved. Uh-huh. And then from the ashes, he's going to build up this, like, alt-right utopia. So I guess this is all wonderful for anarchists who don't care what's going to happen and don't care how destructive and depraved and horrific everything's going to end up being. I guess if you're leaning on that side, then 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 we're on the right track, I suppose. Well, they're like anarchists who believe in basically fascism, which is ironic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, we were talking about Steve Bannon, and I've had conversations with people who are unfamiliar with Steve Bannon. Uh, I don't know if, if they're just not on social media um, or what, but for those of you who don't know, Bannon is perhaps best known for running the alt-right website Breitbart and has been called racist, anti-Semitic, a white nationalist, etc. And based on some statements by him and interviews with him, it's easy to see where that assumption comes from. In an interview with Mother Jones in August of last year, Bannon acknowledged that anti-Semites and white nationalists are, in fact, drawn to the alt-right movement. And the quote was, look, there are some people that are white nationalists that are attracted to some of the philosophies of the alt-right. Are there some people that are anti-Semitic that are attracted? Maybe, right? Maybe some people are attracted to the alt-right that are homophobes, right? But that's just like there there are certain elements of the progressive left and the hard left that attract certain elements. 
And th- that is such a deflective argument to just say, well, you know, the KKK supports us, but, you know, the far left is bad too. Okay, why? Specify why. Can you give specific examples? Or are you just going to keep using that as a defense for every single thing that happens? In another interview with him in 2011, he had a few things to say about women's rights. He said, women that would lead this country would be pro-family. They would have husbands. They would love their children. They wouldn't be a bunch of pardon my French, dykes, that came from the Stephen Sisters schools up in New England. That drives the left insane, and that's why they hate these women. So he stereotypes women as as belonging in the kitchen, basically, as belonging in the household and, and not having their own careers and not being independent. And, and then in 1994, he referred to a former employee as a 29-year-old bimbo and would, quote, kick her ass, unquote, when, uh, when her and another employee sued the company for breach of contract and abusive process. At one point, he also referred to the Occupy movement as the greasiest, dirtiest people you'll ever see, which I guess is kind of funny. But, uh, <laughs> but given the other statements, you know, the context kind of takes away from the humor a little bit. And while many of the statements made during Trump's inauguration, you know, about bringing everyone together and, and things, things of that nature are nice and, and hard to argue with, the speech is discredited a great deal by the fact that it was actually written by Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller. So he has a white nationalist, alt-right, anti-Semitic, sexist man writing his speeches for him. And if, if you're online at all, you'll see GIFs, you know, memes and stuff like that of of Bannon basically, you know, using Trump as a puppet. And I mean, are are those statements far fetched? Are are they are they exaggerations? Are they quote hyperbolic unquote? You be the judge of that. But personally, I'd say that that's kind of how it's looking. And given his track record, that should also be concerning. I mean, there's so many reasons to be concerned about this administration versus just just blindly saying everything that the government does is great or you know everything that they ha- they intend to do is good and we should just accept it and and just 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 kind of blindly following everything like that it, it might be easy but it's it's dangerous and it's especially dangerous right now with these people in power it almost every single one of them has a track record of things that should be alarming um i think the only person who's been appointed that gives me a little bit of hope is the ceo of tesla uh, Elon Musk, you know, he's obviously a, an environmentally active individual. He, you know, supports renewable energy and and uh, the preservation of the environment, which is completely at odds with the Republican platform moving forward and and their intent to completely dissolve the EPA and get rid of it entirely and and return all federally owned land to the states. Which, which, you know, if you're a states' rights kind of person, sure, that's great. But it's, again, checks and balances. We need we need a federal government when we have a country of 350 million people. We just do. We need infrastructure. We need regulations. We need certain things to be maintained by our government. They're not just arbitrarily there for no reason. You can't just completely get rid of them and expect our country to function. You know, what's going to happen to our national parks? What, what What's going to happen in red states that, are, that have all this federal land that's protected you, you know like for, from for the park services and stuff like that what are they going to do when this land is returned to these red states that are probably just going to prioritize oil and fracking and and gasoline and reaping all of the the resources of the earth this this should be scary I mean, it, okay 
So the Clean Air Act was signed in by uh, Richard Nixon in 1970 because the air quality in major cities in the United States had gotten so bad. If you, if you Even if you just Google or look up 1970s pollution, you'll see photos that resemble present-day Beijing. And, and, and when the Clean Air Act was signed, it made radical differences in our air quality. And, you know, it might be a minor inconvenience that you have to drive through that little emissions thing on on the off-ramps on the highway or get an emissions test when you get your car registered. But there's a reason for that. It's to protect the quality of our air. And those federal protections are all being jeopardized by the Republican platform to completely dismantle the EPA. And that should be that should be something that people care about because it's 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 gonna pave the way for us to completely destroy the environment with without without any any roadblocks so to speak well going back to you know their religious views republicans really have this sort of extremely short-term outlook on the world and so they don't care about the environment because they don't believe they're going to be around for it later they believe god gifted this earth to us to use and use up and then we're gonna have armageddon you know, it's Which totally... At, at, at this point, it almost seems like they're trying to make that happen. Oh, well, they are. <laughs> I mean, that's not a joke. If you, I was raised very Christian, so I'm well-versed in, uh, you know, what a lot of the Protestant views are on the end of the world. And it's a fundamental uh, cornerstone of their belief system is that Armageddon is always right around the corner. A lot of people, there was a big panic in the 80s that uh, the generation that saw Israel become a state, which was our parents' generation, the baby boomers, was going to see the the end of the world. It was supposedly prophesied in the book of Revelations. And true or not, they believe it enough to where they don't really look in the long term at all. They don't care a hundred or a thousand years from now. I read somewhere last year, and this goes for both Republicans and Democrats, that the White House and Congress have like a three-month outlook. And they, they don't plan beyond three months out because the world changes too fast and it's just too complicated, I guess, what, for them is, to is think Is it just the it. assumption that the rapture is going to happen before we completely destroy the planet? <laughs> no, that's part of it. Yeah, they, they don't care or they think God's going to come intervene or something. You know, they just – they can only see the moment in their own wallets, honestly. Yeah. They don't want to make sacrifices now for later because they're greedy and they don't feel like they should have to. And so one of the major things that separates West, the Western world from the Eastern world because China has like a 30-year outlook instead of a three-month outlook. Yeah. And, I mean, China's built cities. Well, because they, they have to now. That because aren't even populated yeah. that they know in 30 years will be. I mean, that's the kind of... There's some economic issues and, you know, the real estate boom there. And they should have been more forward with thinking when it came to the environment because the, the fact that they're that they're prioritizing that now has more to do with the damage that's already been necessity. done. Necessity. Yeah, necessity. But here's and, the thing. They're going to act faster and they're going to end up cleaner than the United States <laughs> because yeah. they their government – I'm not advocating, you know, communist, like, dictatorship like Population control and things like that. Yeah, but – there are some advantages to that over our democracy, and that's that they can act faster when evidence presents itself that there's a problem. Mm. 
unlike our system where it doesn't matter what the evidence says, our bureaucracy and uh, other priorities get in the way. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's Steve Bannon and Betsy DeVos. And then, of course, there's also Rex Tillerson, who's the CEO of ExxonMobil, who was his pick for Secretary of State. Rick Perry, who's on board with the company that tried to build the Dakota Access Pipeline for Energy Secretary. The CEO of Goldman Sachs as head of the National Economic Council and Ben Carson as Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. I mean, if Trump's idea of draining the swamp is to dump raw sewage into it, he's doing a bang-up job. Um, Having mentioned Ben Carson, I do have a couple clips of Ben Carson that I'd like to go ahead and play. I've got one where he's discussing with with a Fox News anchor his stance on gay marriage, and then I've got another one where uh, he he is famously quoted as saying, it will not be my intention to do anything to benefit any American, (laughs) which he redacts, but it's still kind of funny. So we're going to give those a listen here real quick. Uh, We have the issue of this, the Supreme Court dealing with two issues involving gay marriage. I've asked you a lot of questions. I've never asked you that. What are your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are that uh, marriage is between a man and a woman. It's a well-established fundamental pillar of society. And no group, uh, be they gays, be they NAMLA, Uh, be they people who believe in bestiality, it it doesn't matter what they are, they don't get to change the definition. So Mm -hmm. it's not something that's against gays, it's it's against anybody who wants to come along and change the fundamental definitions of pillars of society. It has significant ramifications. You know, it's interesting because Justice Sotomayor brought up the issue of of polygamy and incest. Where does the definition stop? And I guess we'll be debating it for the weeks and months to come, but Dr. Carson, Thank you for standing strong, and I'm sorry that you had to go through that treatment for just speaking your mind and, and being an individual. Thank you. It won't, won't be the end of it. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, welcome, welcome to my world. Good to see you. Okay. Uh, On your new role as chair of this committee, I'm looking forward to working with you as well as with six new members of our committee. And Dr. Carson, thank you for being here. Be- thank you. Before we get into some of the questions that I raised in my letter to you earlier this week, I just want to get an answer to, a, I think, a simple yes or no question. If you are confirmed to lead HUD, you'll be responsible for issuing billions of dollars in grants and loans to help develop housing and provide a lot of housing-related services. Now, housing development is an area in which President-elect Trump and his family have significant business interests. Can you assure me that not a single taxpayer dollar that you give out will financially benefit the president-elect or his family? Well, uh, Senator, uh, I was worried that you wouldn't get back. Thank you for coming back. (laughs) (laughs) I'm back. (laughs) Uh, I can assure you uh, that the things that I do are driven by a sense of morals and values. And therefore, I will absolutely not play favorites for anyone. Dr. Carson, let me stop right there. I'm actually trying to ask a more pointed question, and it's not about your good faith. That's not my concern. My concern is whether or not among the billions of dollars that you will be responsible for handing out in grants and loans. Can you just assure us that not 
one dollar will go to benefit either the act or his family it will not be my intention to do anything I, to benefit any any american i understand that it's for all americans but everything may, that we do do i take that to mean that you may manage programs that will significantly benefit the president-elect you can take it to mean that i will manage things in a way that benefits the american people that is going to be the goal uh, to the best uh, you understand it, that you it, if there happens to be an extraordinarily uh, good program that's working for millions of people and it turns out that, that, that someone that you're targeting is going to gain you know ten dollars from it am i going to say no the rest of you americans can't have it i think logic and common sense probably would be the best way yeah although we do have a problem here and i appreciate your good faith in this and i do dr carson the problem is that you can't assure us that hud money not of ten dollar varieties but of multi-million dollar varieties will not end up in the president-elect's pockets and the reason you can't assure us of that is because the president-elect is hiding his family's business interests from you, from me, from the rest of America. And this just highlights the absurdity and the danger of the president-elect's refusal to put his assets in a true blind trust. He knows, he, the president-elect, knows what will benefit him and his family financially. But the public doesn't which means he can divert taxpayer money into his own pockets without anyone knowing about it. The only way that the American people can know that the president is working in their best interests and not in his own is if he divests and puts his assets in through blind trust. Transferring his holdings to his children does nothing, as the head of the nonpartisan ethics committee said just last night. Since the president-elect refuses to address this voluntarily, we need to pass the Presidential Conflicts of Interest Act that I introduced with more than 20 of my colleagues, which would require him to do so. So, with the time I have left, I just want to follow up very quickly on... So, yeah, Ben Carson... This is the man that's the head of housing and urban development now, and not – I mean not everything that he said was completely off base. Most of it was vague more than anything. I have a certain set of morals and values. That's, that's not – that doesn't establish anything. That doesn't say anything really. It's like filling space basically. But <laughs> the head of housing and urban development sounds like he's on Xanax half the time. Does it get any more just weird than this, just up in the air? Like, what is going to happen with all these people in office? Well, I'll say with when it comes to Ben Carson, at least unlike Betsy DeVos and Tillerson, I don't think he has an agenda here. Yeah. I think that he was just kind of thrown into this reluctantly. Um, he obviously had the willpower to turn it down, and he didn't. He's certainly not qualified. Nothing – he's a neurosurgeon. Okay, that's impressive, but that doesn't qualify you to run. I almost find that hard to believe at this point. <laughs> yeah. He's a very anti-science neurosurgeon who doesn't believe in evolution. Um, anyway, I, I mean, at, at least he doesn't have some sort of agenda other than sure. 
what all other Republicans have, which is to dismantle the federal government and leave it up to states' rights, as they always like to say. But what they really mean is they just want to get rid of it altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, even if he doesn't have an agenda, he has no qualifications to run it. He's going to be managing billions of dollars for the poorest among us. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The most vulnerable. And when it comes to housing, that's even more than healthcare. I'd say housing is like one of the most important things. The, mo- the most vulnerable to the Republican platform and previous Republican platforms. Do you think the war on drugs, prop- you know, propagated by Reagan, whom as a president, he did a lot of good things, but he did a lot of things that had long-term consequences that I don't think he considered. And the war on drugs was one of them. It perpetuated the current state of our ghettos and and, and the the wage and class divide were just the, – the wedge was just driven in deeper because of the war on drugs and, and some of the things that were implemented by Reagan and the Republican Party over the years. And the Democrats admittedly – didn't help. Uh, Bill Clinton definitely didn't help the war on drugs. And even I'm willing to admit that as as a registered Democrat, I don't think my party's perfect. I really don't. I think the collusion of the DNC was wrong. And I think that had we had Bernie Sanders, we we might be in a very different place than we are now. And I say that as somebody who voted for Clinton. But to vote for Trump because of what the DNC did with Bernie is to is basically to shoot yourself in the face because somebody shot you in the foot. It just doesn't make any sense to me. You're voting for the absolute worst possible outcome. Well, I think it's because shows. Of, because of because of and, and I I'm not I'm not trying to be a DNC apologist. I'm really not. But you don't take some corruption and some missteps and favor hundreds of missteps. That's not that's not a solution. That's not an alternative. Yeah, it's 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 not that the ideas and the platform of the left is somehow wrong or, or not popular. That's not why we're in this position. We're in this position twofold because one, the Republicans have been building this coup from the ground up for the last 20 years or more. Like I said, since Kennedy really, since they decided that the religious right was losing control of the government and the the zeitgeist in the United mm. States, and they decided to take it back. That's one reason we're here. The other reason is that the Democrats on the other side have been dropping the ball with every president they've had since Kennedy. You know, <laughs> I mean, let's look back. Carter wasn't that great at all. He was a uh-huh. one-term president that really didn't do anything except get us in a mess with Iran. Yeah. Uh, then we had Bill Clinton, who was involved in scandal after scandal, uh, put more black people in prison than any president before him. And while he led one of the greatest economic booms our country has seen, that had very little to do with him and more to do with the tech boom in this, this country yeah, exactly. And then the, Obama the, was great, but he wasn't aggressive enough. And he didn't – I mean, he didn't have that long-term outlook. You know, politically, he didn't see what was coming. We had two years where the Democrats controlled both houses of Congress, the presidency, and had a majority on the Supreme Court. Or at least – yeah, pretty much a majority. We could have overturned the Electoral College then. <laughs> We could have uh, 
gotten gotten rid of gerrymandering. There's so many yeah. things we could have done. We could I, have made D.C. a state, Puerto Rico a state, and gotten Democrats four more seats in the Senate just by making those two places states. Given given those those territories owned by the United or you know occupied by the United States, the ability to vote. Those people can't vote in those territories right now. Yeah, Washington D.C. has like six million people and zero representation in the federal government. They're managed by Congress. Could you imagine your city managed by Congress? They can't even like <laughs> they can't even decide like which way to go on a one-way street. Like they are in charge of managing a city like Washington DC, but I mean that's like the last thing on their list of priorities. So Washington DC has zero representation in federal government. Puerto Rico, zero representation in federal government. Puerto Rico has been facing this major financial crisis. They never really recovered from the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, it's really come to a head this year, and Congress has really done nothing because they're not a priority. Like it's about time we make them a state. They've been begging for it. They need representation, and that'd be great for Democrats because they are m- far more liberal leaning area. Uh, that would give us at least two more senators there. Two Washington D.C. is one of the most liberal areas in the country, uh, so two more senators there. That's enough right now to give us a majority. Yeah, in the Senate. I, I voted for Obama twice, and I'm not such a such a stark partisan that I'm not willing to admit that even the party that I'm registered to has made mistakes. I would have loved to see Obama sign an executive order to legalize marijuana or, or to at least prioritize marijuana studies. There's things that he could, I would have loved to see an executive order to at least reform the way that gerrymandering happens. And if you're not familiar with gerrymandering, basically they've been doing it for, for decades. And now the technology is so that they can basically draw their own districts so precisely that they can draw it through a house that has one Democrat on one side and one Republican on the other. So they can look at an at a, at a district and they can say, this district is mostly minorities or this district is mostly impoverished or, or et cetera. And, and they can draw their districts accordingly. They can say, okay, there's probably not a whole lot of people in this impoverished district that are going to vote for Republicans. So we're going to draw around these houses and basically guarantee that this congressman is elected based on these districts. So from the ground up, the elections are essentially controlled. The, the, the congressmen and, and, and the, the people who draw the districts can, can establish who they – are, they can establish almost perfectly who's going to get elected by drawing these districts. And Obama should have written an executive order to to reform or outlaw gerrymandering, but he didn't because it's it's part of what got him elected. Truth, truthfully, he he was a participant in drawing Democratic districts, and it absolutely helped him get elected. Yeah, one thing but, about the technology too is that it's. To the point where we can make districts that are um, fully representative of the populace. So, like, if you have an area that has 30 percent Republicans and 70 percent Democrats, right now we have a situation where the Republicans have more representation because of this gerrymandering, um, particularly giving more power to rural areas. And that's just not right, you yeah. know? So we, the technology is there now where we can actually design these to, to reflect – the overall uh, population trend, but 
because of politics and because of the way the rules are written now. That's not as easy to manipulate. State-level legislatures can draw it however they want. And that's one thing Republicans did was they conquered state legislatures a decade ago. Right now, it's like two, over two-thirds of the states have Republican-controlled House, Senate, and even governors, even in liberal areas. And they redrew the lines, and now we're in a situation where both Republic, you know, the House of Representatives is going to be Republican probably for the next 20 years until we can somehow retake all these state legislatures, redraw the lines to at least be more even – and then start voting in more Democrats. You, but you don't think that? What do you think the midterms are going to do? The midterms aren't going to do anything. See, we have—I don't know the exact numbers, but it's something like eighteen Democrats are up for re-election and three Republicans. So that doesn't look good for Democrats. <laughs> Best case scenario, we gain what three seats? This is in the Senate. We gain three seats in the Senate. So you're saying because there are so many Democrats. If we win every single one, we get three seats. That's enough to give us a, a majority right now. Mm. But that's – I mean we're not going to win 21, 21 out of 21 races, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I wish I wish that look was better, but we're really – when it comes to the Senate – I mean in the House, there's no way we're going to get a majority even in the midterm. Because of this gerry- these gerrymandered districts, these Republicans are entrenched in their districts, and they're not going to be voted out. Our only hope is in the Senate, and it's really – we have to keep everything in 2018 and then in 2020 when a lot of Republicans are up for um, re-election because when they swept during Obama's presidency and the Tea Party and everything, and they swept all these midterm elections two years ago, they'll finally be up – for re-election, and we can finally maybe try and get back a Democratic majority in the Senate then. Bernie Sanders recently said that, you know, the D- the DNC is responsible in a lot of ways for this outcome and, you know, the collusion of, of his selection from the primaries. And, um, and a lot of people voted for Trump he said because of his kind of anti-establishment rhetoric, regardless of all the other stuff that he said throughout his campaign, the the racist, you know, sexist, divisive stuff that he said, a lot of people justified it because he was to some degree anti-establishment. But – and nor- normally I wouldn't advocate for this because – I try to say stick to the stick to the facts and stick to the policies, but there was and there is a lot to be said for Trump's character and the things that he's been caught doing and saying and and expressing and 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 it's it's demonstrated the kind of person that he he is and that's being reflected by his cabinet picks. He said he was going to quote drain the swamp unquote. He is doing the absolute opposite of draining the swamp he is appointing the most crony billionaires he can possibly find to these positions many of whom are have no qualifications other than the fact that they're billionaires they have lots of money and i maybe maybe this is ad hominem but 
I just picture him being like, I'm just going to pick people who have never said anything mean about me because so many people have said so many awful things about me that I'm just going to pick other people who have mon- had money, have money, and whom I've hung out with at galas and had drinks with and, you know, have had in my ivory tower and, and had nice pleasant pleasantries with and – I'm just going to put them in these positions of authority because they're the only people that aren't, you know, part of the fake news, quote unquote, that are saying all these awful things about me. It, it's, it's just, it's so indicative of somebody who does not have integrity. Well, I think with Trump, you to truly understand him, you have to realize that he looks at himself as a fraud, and to try and confirm that he's not a fraud. He surrounds himself with these powerful people. He likes to rub shoulders with celebrities. He likes to have all these billionaire friends. He, he brought in Elon, Elon Musk and all these other tech mm. billionaires to be in this strategic counts, economic council. Economic advisor. Sure. You're a billionaire. Tell me how to right. continue to be a billionaire. And I it's guess. not like he's going to listen to what they have to say. He just likes that they're on his team, that he yeah. gets to associate with them. And this is how he was with celebrities in which – I was reading this thing about, well, Howard Stern, in fact, one of his good friends, uh, did an interview where he, he said, I think Trump really hates the fact that he won, especially now because Hollywood is against him. And he loves Hollywood. He loves celebrities. And now they're all against him and he can't stand it. He was on a reality TV show. Of course, he, yeah. like, he, of course he wants Hollywood to like him. Yeah. Oh, his debate with Arnold Schwarzenegger. His, oh, jeez. I mean, <laughs> at the prayer di- breakfast or whatever that is. He, his prayer was uh, that Arnold Schwarzenegger's uh, gets as many ratings as he did on it's The like, New Apprentice. What are you doing? Why are you talking about ratings? You're the president of the United uh, States. Why are you dogging on Arnold Schwarzenegger and saying that he's not getting as good of ratings on a reality TV show that you were on? Get your priorities straight. Why is this something that you're even preoccupied with? Well, Arnold's response was great, too. His response was, hey, let's switch jobs. <laughs> you can have your job back on The Apprentice, and I'll be president. Of course, he can't be president because he wasn't born here. <laughs> yeah, but I, I know, I know. Uh, Obama. I mean, I'm sorry. Arnold Schwarzenegger is kind of a lot of people see him as bipartisan because he has he has some Republican leaning ideas and some Democrat leaning ideas. Yeah, he ran as a Republican, but mm. he, I mean, he was in California. You don't get elected in California without being at least a centrist yeah yeah exactly Uh, let's let's talk about some of the statements made in in trump's inauguration um actually no you know what's let's 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 talk about uh yeah i mean i guess this pertains to the inauguration he said that he believes in solidarity which would be everybody coming together and will work for all americans quote unquote and who doesn't like the idea of solidarity, right? Coming together is how anything gets done. But to demand that people come together and and build a wall when we should be tearing down walls and coming to and that's that's the exact opposite of coming together is is building huge walls between countries. This happened once already in Berlin and it didn't play out very well. No, I agree. One thing that people, I mean, these things that Trump really ran on, in some ways, are so far away from the platform of the right that it's amazing that people supported him. And it's like, do they not see it? Do, do they not see that you can't both 
limit federal government and then build walls around our country. <laughs> that I mean, you can't have fascism and, and limited federal government. It's, you know, they're polar opposites. And yet these people can somehow, I guess it's the 1984 Orwellian doublethink, <laughs> they can somehow believe in both limited government and fascist strong government well if you've if you've read 1984 and you know listeners if you've read 1984 they talk about newspeak what what's more comparable to newspeak than alternative facts i mean that was basically just saying lifted that, that, right out of the book that truth and information are somehow subjective now truth and information will never be subjective whether or not they collide with your with your personal biases truth and information and facts and reality will never be subjective for instance you can't say regardless of and you know i'm not anti-christian i I believe in freedom of religion i do however believe in separation of church and state but i believe in freedom of religion but you can't say that because you don't understand evolution or it seems too far-fetched for you that it's not true evolution happens every single day every time you every time we procreate that's evolution there are aspects of our children that resemble our parents and if you extend those sorts of genetic Evidences over millions of years, recognizable characteristics continually get less and less recognizable. That's how evolution works. There's not subcategories. There's not macroevolution and microevolution. It's all evolution. That's how and why DNA exists in the first place. You can't argue that regardless of what a book says, regardless whether it's the Quran or the Bible or something written on a blog about the flying spaghetti monster. You can't argue that. That's a fact. Facts matter. Facts matter. They are not subjective. You can't just say, oh, this this doesn't agree with what I feel, therefore it's not true. That's not acceptable. And we have an entire administration that is jeopardizing education and the proliferation of facts and valuable information that is going to make or break scientists and scholars in the generations to come. You know, like the earth being 6,000 years old. The earth is not six to 10,000 years old. It is billions i'm sorry yeah billions right two billion if i, no, if I remember about correct 4.6 4.7 4. okay. billion it's billions of years old and they know this through carbon dating and the way that carbon dating works is they measure the half-life of radioactive isotopes uh, and and they and they look at fossilized minerals and it's not fallible it's 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 as measurable as 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 the watch on your wrist or the sun setting and rising it is fact Fact. Fact matters. There is not alternative facts. There are not subjective truths. There are realities. And these realities should be taught in schools and they should be a priority. And it's perfectly okay if you want to buy your children Bibles or let them go to Bible study or let them go to Catholic school. But you cannot undermine science and scientific studies and the things that we know and the things that have been established through the scientific method. They are not up for debate. It is important for us to remember that or we are going to set ourselves back and the most intelligent people the people who stand to move us forward the most as a society as a, as a species are once again as has been proven throughout history seen as are, will be seen as heretics and will be ostracized and will be singled out and shamed for asking questions and for saying I you say that it's this way but I think there's a chance it might be it, it might be this way we cannot criminalize that Keep asking questions, but don't look at things that should be unanimously accepted as true and say, oh, it's not true because it doesn't agree with what I feel or what I personally think. Well, and even if 
it doesn't get that extreme, and I'm not discounting that it will because it very well could. Um, but even if it doesn't get as extreme to where we're criminalizing it, sure, I'm not saying we're going to be crucifying people or burning people at the stake, but it does reduce like the number of those people in our country. You yeah, know? Uh, foreigners who might come here like, are going to feel less should, comfortable. Science should not be fringe. Yeah, or people who would go into that in, into college or into high school, going into one of the STEM fields. They might not now because it's not valued in our society anymore. And that ultimately makes us weaker economically, socially, culturally, because these are the people that really drive the economy. Yeah. They're the engine. It's not our politicians. It's the engineers, the mathematicians, the scientists. They're the ones who drive Silicon Valley. Mm. We wouldn't have even even the bad energies like... Oil and coal we wouldn't yeah. have without them. We wouldn't have any of them. We wouldn't be able to utilize them if it weren't for scientists and engineers. We can't you don't have an you don't have an economy that's just based on the service industry. The reason you that can't. everything that you were able to buy at Radio Shack is now in your pocket is because of a rule known as Moore's Law that was that was established in the eighties when they realized Every so often, this technology is going to shrink and it's going to get more advanced. And that's because of engineers and manufacturers and computer scientists, some of the smartest people in the world. They are part of a science community that is now being vilified, that's now being pushed to the fringe to the point where they're planning a scientific march to defend the validity of science. Are you kidding me? This is the 21st century. Everything in our lives is science. Everything in our lives is scientific. From the car that we drive, to the phone that we stare at in public, to our computer at home, to the to the microwave in your kitchen, it's all science. So for science to be this fringe thing now where you have to, where you have to defend its validity is patently absurd. Yeah, and th- what's going to happen is they'll, they'll leave our country or they won't come here in the first place. And it'll go somewhere else, and we'll lose our competitive advantage. Mm. And so then the next Apple or the next Google is going to be in Sweden or India, and it's not going to be in the United States. And, I mean, that technological innovation has been one of the cornerstones of American economic success since World War II and even before that, since the 1800s. And... I mean, this culture of, yeah, anti-science, anti-education, anti-public schools, you know, driving religious fundamentalism into every aspect of society. Xenophobia, you know, as as much of a platitude as that might be now that it's been said so much, xenophobia is a real thing. And uh, to be as empathetic as I possibly can here, I'm not much of an empath, but I will say this. I understand fear. I understand emotion. I understand how overwhelming and crippling your emotions can be your fear your fear of the worst possible outcome worst case scenario but fear by nature by definition clouds judgment when you when you go through everyday life afraid you are not thinking clearly for instance being afraid of muslims being afraid of the gigantic Muslim community in the world because of the actions of a few is not rational. And as a result, we are 
undermining everything that we stand for as a country. We're taking the Lazarus poem on the Statue of Liberty that says, give me your tired, your, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. We are taking that and we are sullying it. We are misrepresenting ourselves as, as a country. All the things that have made America great in the first place are being undermined because of fear, because of irrational fear and stereotyping people based on the actions of a few. 9-11 was horrible. 9-11 was devastating. I remember it like it was yesterday. I was in middle school. They turned the TV on. You know, they locked down the school. Nobody knew what was going to happen. It was horrifying. But those were the actions of a few. We cannot criminalize total strangers, oppress total strangers, oppress people who just want to come here and flourish, come here and succeed because of some major historical events that don't even pertain to them other than the fact that they share a label with with some radical jihadists who are no different than the staggering number of white nationalist Christian gun-owning Americans who have committed crimes since 9-11. And, and those statistics, those deaths have completely outweighed the deaths of 9-11. There have been so many more people killed in this country from gun from gun violence, white white people propagating gun violence than than died on 9/11. And that's worth acknowledging whether or not it's it's perceived as offensive, you know, if you're a white person you feel that it's stereotyping or oppressive. Well, now you might have an idea of how how it might feel for 1 billion people in the world to be seen as jihadists because of one horrible thing that happened 15 years ago, 16 years ago. Well, I think this is a good segue into talking about the Ninth Circuit's decision on the Muslim ba- oh, sorry. The it's not a Muslim ban, immigration it's ban on the immigration, unquote. the refugee ban. Yeah. So, I mean, for people not that familiar with the courts, this is a good example of how checks and balances in this country is actually working, which is the one little glimmer of hope in all of this. So if the president does something that's not constitutional, it can be challenged in the court. One of the key um, important, th- important ways to challenge it is you have to show that there's been an injury. You have to have what's called standing. Mm-hmm. And that means that uh, an actual or imminent injury has happened to you or will happen soon. So what happened was two states brought an, an, a lawsuit against the Trump administration to overturn this ban on traveling from these seven countries. Mm. The district court, district federal court, put a temporary restraining order on it, meaning until we can hear the full thing, we're going to stop it because it's causing too many problems. It's hurting too many people. Well, the Trump administration appealed that decision. And then the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is a panel of three judges, they voted unanimously to uphold this temporary restraining order. Uh, Meaning that, you know, right now, the ban isn't in effect. And fortunately, the Department of Homeland Security uh, has decided to uh, to go along with the court's order which do you, do you know do you know how long it's blocked for do you have any idea well it's blocked indefinitely so a temporary restraining order typically is only good i think for 14 days mm-hmm. but right now the the ninth circuit actually said that it's likely to go on longer than that which is what one of the things that allowed them to hear it as an appeal because normally a temporary restraining order is not appealable mm-hmm. So that was actually one thing that was 
good for the Trump administration was that they were allowed to appeal it at all because they actually treated it as another court thing called a a preliminary injunction, which is similar to a temporary restraining order. Basically, it's just the court saying, stop until we can figure this out. Um, So, yeah, it's until the case can be heard on the merits in full, you know, this ban is not going to be in effect. This could be weeks. It could be months. It's really up to the court, up to the attorneys. And Trump tweeted, see you in court. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm sure federal judges Here's are why. Because he's most likely going to – well, I don't know if it's most likely, but he could appeal to the Supreme Court now. Of course, the Supreme Court only has eight members. They're 4-4 split, liberal and conservative, although I don't really think it's that clear cut in the courts. But politically, we'll say they're 4-4 split. Sure. That means that if they come to a tie, then the Ninth Circuit Court's decision stands. So that's really not a good outlook for Trump either, going that route. What he's most likely going to do is just pass another executive order, because that's much easier Mm -hmm. for him to do. I mean, he just has one of his people write some stuff up, and he signs it. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm just going to stop you right there for a minute. Trump used to rail on and on and on about all of Obama's executive orders. And now it's like the only way that Trump can get anything done is by writing executive orders. Well, because everything that he managed to rally people for or against, he is going the complete opposite direction. Well, there's a reason there's a reason why he's using the executive order. Uh, one, it's faster than going through Congress. Two, he doesn't want to be beholden to Congress. And if he submits anything to Congress to pass, then they are going to have leverage over him. And he wants that. He wants to basically be a dictator. Just like, (laughs) well, when you're the CEO of a corporation, you are a dictator. Mm -hmm. And that's how he wants to run this country, like a CEO. But you can't do that. We weren't – our constitution specifically says you can't do that. (laughs) That's a dictatorship. Um, Right now he has this cozy relationship with Congress. You know, the solidarity among Republicans, going back to that Betsy DeVos vote, where 50 Republicans voted to confirm her. Not a single one switched sides, even though they all knew she was terrible. That kind of party loyalty is almost scary. Mm Mm-hmm. Right now, the Republicans are so unified, but I I think ultimately that's not going to last forever. And eventually Trump is going to pass one too many executive orders, and the Republican Party is going to be the one to come in and finally stand up to him. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter shared a post that was going viral that listed off some of the best approaches for dealing with these situations. And one of them was to not just refer to Trump, obviously not to just like use stereotypes about him being orange or like to just make fun of superficial things because that's, I mean, it's funny, but it's not productive. But uh, she said that we should address all Republicans as much as possible to remind them that everything that happens under this administration, they are unless they unless they speak out unless they they decide to vote otherwise they are partially responsible because they're on board and we should refer to the republican majority as much as possible 
Yeah, if you're complicit with tyranny, then you're a mm. tyrant. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It goes back to, you know, I mean, pretty much any dictatorship or oppressive government. Mm. You you have people who rebelled and you have people who uh, worked with them. And mm. if you work with them, you're just as bad as them because you're basically sanctioning their behavior and you're benefiting from it. Or you were complacent or apathetic or non-participant, yeah. in which case you're still not favored. And the reason people well. do that is because of privilege. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I was just reading this thing, you know, about, yeah, if you can step away from politics. In fact, I think you might have posted it. If you can step back from politics, that's privilege. Because a lot of exactly, people exactly. can't. If you're a, a, lot, a lot of people are affected directly in very profound ways about the decisions that are going to be being, being made or the decisions that are already being made. For instance, if you're a member of the LGBT community and you grew up being called a faggot every day and having your ass kicked and you go to the grocery store and you hold hands with your boyfriend, you get the shit beat out of you. Of course, you're going to care if Republicans are rallying for an anti-LGBT law. It's easy to not care if it doesn't affect you directly. That's what privilege is. That is the definition of privilege is not if you don't care about groups that marginalized groups that don't have anything to do with you because it doesn't affect you, that's privilege. That's comfort. That's having the right and the ability to be complacent. That is literally privilege. So I know there's a lot of people sick of talking about this. Mm. They're sick of talking about Trump. They're sick of hearing it. I get it. I am too. I wish we didn't have to. Me too. But we can't afford not to. We can't afford to sit here and be complacent and hope this will pass or just say this is the way things are always going to be because they're not. They're only going to get worse unless we stand up to them. Absolutely. All right. Let's take a quick musical break. I'm going to play something you guys have never heard before. It's called No Junk, No Soul. This was never released. I did, however, once perform this live at the church nightclub downtown uh, while DJ Gosh was playing. Uh, I sang the vocals because the vocals are are yours truly. Uh, This was never released. It's called No Junk, No Soul. Enjoy. Control Pain Never 
before I've gone overboard And I'm never gonna find A peace of mind if I live like this All the time, all the time, all the time <laughs> You're tuned into the Joe Man Show on KUHS Denver. I'm your host, Joe Man. This is episode three, the inevitable post-inauguration politics discussion. My guest this evening is Christian Black, attorney at law. And the track that you just heard was an unreleased track called No Junk, No Soul uh, that it, it garnered a decent amount of popularity in the Denver scene just from back in the day when I was just a young goth teenager trying to get people to listen to my music i used to burn that one onto cds and give it out and a local dj gosh found it and liked it and so he invited me to do a live vocal performance of that song at the church when i was i want to say 19 uh something like that yeah that was all me that was all recorded um 
practically no processing apart from some distortion. I recorded it when I was living in a in a small house on Federal, and I basically recorded it in, in, in a friggin' closet with a stage mic that they just happened to have laying around. And if you actually listen really closely on that recording, you can hear a vacuum cleaner in certain sections in the background <laughs> because they were they were vacuuming in the living room when I was trying to record that. Um, but nevertheless, very little processing on those vocals. Lots of me just screaming my lungs out and being a little Nine Inch Nails wannabe. <laughs> but uh, so let's dive back into our discussion. We've been discussing the cabinet picks, policies, uh, the Trump administration, the Republican platform, every every manner of everything politically related we've, we've been delving into um, in this show. And, you know, one of, the, one of the things that Trump talked about was that he wanted to get people off welfare and back to work. And that's such a loaded gun because, first of all, a lot of the states that are on welfare are red states. Uh, the highest welfare states are actually Mississippi, Louisiana, Tennessee, South Dakota, Missouri, Montana, and Georgia. And maybe, and, and this just kind of dawned on me, I had a little bit of an epiphany while we were listening to music. It, it dawned on me, maybe there are so many people who lean right or are, you know, hard right who live in red states that are against welfare because maybe it's an everyday part of their life. Maybe they know people that are on welfare. Maybe they know people who are lazy and that they feel should just get a job or whatever. But it's also, it's a fallacious argument because it's under the assumption that unique experience describes the whole. And that's, that's a common logical fallacy is to say my experience is so, and therefore this is the way that everything is because there are so many people on welfare who need it. And there are so many people who because of the Obamacare repeal, the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, are going to lose coverage on valuable medication, life-saving medication that uh, that they won't be able to afford to pay thousands of dollars a month for. And as it stands now, the the Republican platform has not defined clearly what their replacement for the Affordable Care Act is going to be, frankly, because I don't think it's much of a priority to them what the replacement is. They just look at anything that Obama did and say, okay, let's just completely undo this. Well, so the Affordable Health Care Act and its repeal is, I think, the the thing that's going to undo the Republicans. Um, the thing is, our health care system doesn't work under the Republican platform of free market, you know, free market economy. It just doesn't obey the same rules of supply and demand that create efficient, affordable prices. It's because it's an essential need. It's more like water than it is like McDonald's. So the thing is that the Affordable Care Act was originally a Republican plan. It was supported by Mitt Romney um, when he was governor of Massachusetts, right? And it was adopted by the Democrats as a compromise on full, like, single-payer socialized medicine. So it's ironic, then, that the Republicans are so against the Affordable Care Act. It was their plan originally. Now they're against it. But they can't replace it with what they want to replace it with, which is nothing, because was was a 
it, I, I honestly don't know. Um, was the ACA... It wasn't put in place by an executive order, was it? It was voted in, wasn't it? It was voted in during yeah. the two-year period when Obama was president his first two years, and we had a, dem- a Democrat-controlled uh, House and Senate. It still only passed a filibuster because they took away the um, government option. So there was an individual mandate, meaning everybody had to have it. This is what Mm. the insurance companies required in order to participate. So that individual mandate was supposed to be counterbalanced by two things, by the expansion of Medicaid, which would allow people making under like $15,000 a year, whether or not you had kids, um, get Medicaid. Mm -hmm. One, states had to adopt that in each state because Medicaid – it's federal dollars, but it's administered on the state level. Mm-hmm. Many states didn't. That's a whole other issue. The other thing that was supposed to counterbalance this individual mandate was a government insurance option to compete with all the private insurers. Well, the re- Republicans wouldn't have that. More government. They're so anti-government that they're blinded by it. Mm-hmm. So then we ended up in a situation where everybody had to have insurance by law or you pay this penalty, which is what's killing people right now, financially, well, and literally because they can't afford insurance. But now we have all private insurers, and they're the ones that can opt out of the ACA altogether, or they can raise their rates. The problem is the ACA is – that. well, this is why it's not working is because – <clears throat> the government option wasn't there to help keep rates down. So now mm. rates are going up. Everyone's paying more. And if you can't pay more, then you don't have insurance. And then you have to pay anyway. Mm-hmm. A penalty. The problem is the ACA is the most Republican-friendly health care plan that we could have in this country. Mm-hmm. And so by going against it, they backed themselves into this corner where the only thing more Republican-friendly is nothing. And the only thing that's going to work to improve our healthcare situation is more government. But they can't do that because that goes against our platform. So now they're starting <laughs> to back off from repealing it totally, and they're just going to just change it. Or, in other words, just slap another name on it, probably. <laughs> or, yeah, slap another name on it, distract us from it, and just let it go it's, you know, as it's going now and hope people forget. It, it's just, just – yeah. <laughs> ironic that they backed themselves into this corner where if they don't repeal it, they're going to lose. And if they do repeal it, they're going to lose. And for how savvy they've been up to this point, it's kind of funny that they didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. Well, we're uh, we're just about out of time. So I think we're going to go ahead and close on the following quote from Democratic Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer. If there was ever a group of cabinet nominees that cry out for rigorous scrutiny, it's this one. The president's cabinet is a swamp cabinet full of billionaires and bankers that have conflicts of interest and ethical lapses as far as the eye can see. And upon researching and and better understanding said cabinet picks, this is a statement that is pretty hard to dispute. You've been tuned into the Joe Man Show. I'm your host, Joe Man. This is my guest, Christian Black. Thanks for joining us, Christian. Thank you. And I hope all of you have a wonderful night, and we'll see you next week on KUHS Denver.